Please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 16 as we will continue our series in the certainty of the Savior. Luke chapter 16, Jesus has been going back and forth speaking to the Pharisees, then to his disciples, now again uh, to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day. And this morning we'll be looking at verses 14 through 18. Out of reverence and respect for God and his word, let's stand for the reading of his word again this morning. Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John, and since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Here ends the reading of God's Word. Let's again pray. Father, strengthen us by your grace, reveal your glory to us by your word, and enable us, we pray, to become lovers of you, not merely the lovers of the stuff that surrounds us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. A couple of years ago, I began to team teach one of our Sunday night small group Bible studies with our now retired Clemson City Police Chief Jimmy Dixon and you've heard me say that I often refer to that small group as law and grace. You know there's often confusion today between the relationship of law and grace. I remember in 1981 as a first-year student at Covenant Theological Seminary one of our professors John Sanderson opened a class with these words, throughout the entirety of your Christian life, Satan is going to attempt to confuse you over the relationship between law and grace. He's going to try to veer your life either towards legalism or towards license. What does he mean? Satan either wants us to forget the gospel and seek to earn our acceptance before God by way of our works, or he wants us to confuse the gospel and live as though God no longer cares about his law or our lives. But Satan's attempt to sabotage the gospel and to confuse our understanding of law and grace isn't something new to the modern-day church. It's something that's existed since the fall in the garden. And Jesus often dealt with that kind of confusion between law and grace. And we come to a passage in which he is doing this again. Jesus is engaged with the Pharisees, the self-appointed religious gatekeepers of the law. And in this passage, Jesus is reminding us that God continues to care very much about his law. And that grace does the same in the hearts and lives of members of his kingdom. And so let's listen in again of one of Jesus' conversations 
with the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, as he enters into discussion of law, grace, and the kingdom of God. One of the first things we see in his interaction with these Pharisees is that God has established his law to be much more than an external regulation, but an internal indication of the true nature and condition of our hearts. Here again we find the Pharisees standing around Jesus teaching, but this time not with folded arms standing in a distance, but rather with their noses up in the air with disgust. The reason is that we're told they were lovers of money. And Jesus has just been addressing this. But as they, they look at Jesus, they see this poor carpenter, this itinerant preacher from the backwoods, Nazareth, traveling along with his poor ragamuffin band of disciples. They think, what could he possibly know about worldly wealth? And, and so they ridiculed him. Literally, the text reads, the Greek word says, they wrinkled their noses at him. What could he possibly know? But again, why beyond that? Well, the Pharisees not only had wealth, but they saw it as a sign of God's blessing upon them. God certainly has entrusted us with this wealth because of our righteous deeds, our dedication, and our devotion. And because Jesus lacked wealth, he must have lacked this devotion as well. But there's a problem with the Pharisees' outward emphasis, this outward-focused religiosity, and that is this. The text tells us, God knows the heart. I've reminded you of a plaque that I heard about one time on a friend's retirement center door that simply reads, God knows my heart. Now, you hear a lot of people that will say that. Oh, well, they're excusing some kind of sin in their lives, but, oh, but, but God knows my, my heart. Well, the plaque reads, God knows my heart, and that's the problem from the start. The, the problem is God does know my heart. Psalm 139 says that He knows my thoughts from afar. But before they ever cross my, my puny brain, He knows the words on my heart before they ever cross my tongue and from my mouth. God knows all of this. The Almighty is all-knowing and He knows every thought and word and deed, every motive and intention of my heart. He knows the pride and prejudice, the lies and the lust, the anger and the anxiety, the greed and the guilt. And the reality that often I love my money much more than I love my master. He knows all of this. He sees the religious pretense, the outward facade, and we're told it greatly offends him. What people admire about us, often God sees as an abomination. That's the word here. What man loves, God sees as an abomination. Why? Isaiah reminds us of our outward deeds, of our outward righteous acts, of our religious facade. And he says they are filthy, putrid rags in the sight of God. Imagine after this service, running over to the, the nursery hall and opening the pail of dirty diapers. Behold, my righteous deeds and your righteous deeds 
apart from Christ. It's an abomination. It's a stench in God's nostrils. In fact, the word abominable comes from the root meaning of to offend one's nostrils. Now, there's a play on word here. You get the picture? The Pharisees are wrinkling their nose at Jesus while God is holding his nose at them. Such is our self-righteousness in his sight. Now, we would never know this about ourselves if it wasn't for the law of God. If it wasn't for the perfect mirror of God's word, as we look into that mirror, we see not only it reflects the outward actions of our lives, but it also reflects the inward nature of our hearts. This is what got Paul about the law. The law and the former Pharisee Saul of Tarsus actually cut him to the quick. It, it killed the Pharisee with one command. Not, not a command that deals with the external, but a command that just goes straight to the heart. The tenth commandment, you shall not covet. Read his testimony in Romans 7. He thought outwardly he was doing wonderful. And all of a sudden, the law of God pricked his heart and brought conviction. Jesus used the same internal aspect of the law as well. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount as he dealt with the sixth commandment of not murdering and the seventh commandment of not committing adultery. And Jesus said, you know what the law says and the use of the law, here it is. Have you ever hated someone? Then you have the heart of a murderer. Have you ever looked on someone with lust? Then you have the heart of an adulterer. The, the law shoots straight to the heart. And the point of this passage is that God knows all. Every angry thought, every lustful look, every motive and intent of the heart, our God knows it all. And furthermore, we read passages about this all-knowing God like this. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. There will be no excuses on the day of judgment. Every mouth may be stopped and the whole world held accountable to God. One day every last single one of us will stand before this all-knowing God this all-holy and all-righteous and all-just God, and we will have to give an account of every evil deed, every lustful, greedy thought, and every last angry word. Oh, Lord, you know my heart, and that's the problem from the start. So what is our hope the purpose of the law, both externally and internally, the purpose of the law is to point out our sin in order to point us to our need of the Savior. That's the law's design. It is to drive us to Christ. That's why Paul says in the letter to the Galatians that the law is like a, a guardian or a school teacher, a tutor with one message. Look to Christ. Look to Him alone for your salvation. It's an over to bring us to faith in Christ. Paul says, for the law is our tutor to bring us to Christ so that we might be justified. How? By faith. 
if we want to be made right with the living God, the eternal nature of the law is intended to expose the cesspool of my heart and to remind me that I desperately, desperately need a Savior. A, a Savior whose obedience, both external and internal, was always perfect before His Father. A Savior who willingly took upon Himself the penalty, the law's penalty of my sin in my place and of your sin and in your place. And so the law is good for it points us relentlessly to the grace of God in the gospel of His Son. But now that His Son has arrived, and by grace, now that you've trusted in Him as your Savior, what use is there of the law? Does it continue? And Jesus reminds us that God has established His law as an eternal, unchanging revelation of His very nature and character of His will and of His ways for members of His kingdom. He says that again in verses 16 through 18. He mentions John the Baptist and the coming of John the Baptist, the, the last of the Old Testament prophets, if you will, the immediate forerunner of the Son of God Himself. John the Baptist comes on the scene with all the blood of the rams and lambs and bulls and goats in the background of the Old Testament. And he sees Jesus and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But Jesus wants to make it abundantly clear that upon the arrival of John, the preaching of the good news of the kingdom and of the gospel of grace, that the law has not been altered one bit. In fact, this message further establishes it. You see, the law was a revelation of the eternal, unchanging nature and character of God. Countries may come and go. Cultures may shift and change. But not the nature and character of our eternal God. He is unchanging in His nature. And because the law is a reflection of that unchanging, eternal nature, it is Continuous. That's why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to what? To fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth, hear the echoes of Luke 16, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. This is why it's absurd for someone who's seeking to deny God's moral law to say things like, well, you know, it, it is the 21st century. Yeah, but last time we checked, heaven and earth were still here. The, the law of God in its eternal, unchanging nature is still established by the words of Jesus himself. Jesus fully endorsed and affirmed the continued authority of God's moral law revealed in the Ten Commandments, and it's intact today until heaven and earth pass away. All the authority, all the trustworthiness extends down to the smallest letter and the least stroke of the pen. The, the smallest letter is the yod in the Hebrew. It's just a, a half of a half of a line, basically, just a, a little letter and the least stroke of a pen. We might say today, Jesus' view of the law is this. It is full 
and continued down to the last dotting of the I and the crossing of the T. If you want to know Jesus' view of the Scriptures, Jesus' view of this book, here it is. But he went also to say in John chapter 10, and the law cannot be broken, the Scriptures cannot be broken. He's affirming what the Old Testament psalmist said. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. The prophet Isaiah said, the the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands for how long? Forever. At the end of his life, Joshua was able to say about the scriptures that he had at that time, and now I'm about to go the way of the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed. Of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you, all have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. That's what Jesus is affirming here before the Pharisees in Luke chapter 16. And if we believe this is true, if we hold Jesus' view of the scriptures, then what? So what? Then with renewed passion, we will take up this book and we will read it. We will devour it. We will meditate upon it day and night. We will seek to hide it in our hearts and most of all, by God's grace and for his glory, we will seek to adhere to it that he might receive the glory and the honor in his lives, that we will adhere to the very voice of God speaking from the pages of Holy Writ. I love John Wesley's attitude towards the Word. He said, oh, give me that book. Give me the book of God at any price. Give me that book. Make me a man of one book. If we believe what Jesus is saying here in Luke 16, that will be the attitude of our hearts as well as members of his kingdom. And because of this one book, the word of God and the moral law of God points out our sin and need of a savior, Jesus uses this interesting phrase. Did you notice again in verse 16? Look at verse 16. He says, when that good news of the kingdom comes and when it's preached, everyone forces his way into it. What is Jesus saying? Once the Holy Spirit convicts you of the truth of God's word, of what Jesus has just said, once the Holy Spirit convicts me and convicts you of our utter sin and the cesspool of our hearts and our desperate need of the Savior, then we will press towards Christ with all the earnestness and eagerness and energy and ardor that we can ever begin to muster up because we know He is the Savior of our souls and we desperately, desperately need Him. We will press towards Him like people gathered outside the door of Best Buy on Good Friday, pressing against that door. Can't wait to get in to get that 90-inch TV screen on sale. And the doors open and you've seen the scenes and they come rushing in. That's the force of faith in the life of the true believer in the kingdom of God. We will run to Christ and we will embrace him and we will hold on to him by faith. Let me ask you this morning, 
Has God in his grace and mercy brought you to that place in your life where it is Jesus or bust? Where, where it is Christ and there is no other hope, there is no other longing, there is no other way in which you can be made right with God and you must have him. Jesus says such is the members of his kingdom. Force, the fa- force of faith rushing to Christ. That's the purpose of the law. And so again, far from nullifying the law, what we end up seeing in this passage is that the good news of the gospel of grace and of the kingdom of God further establishes, encourages, and actually enables loving obedience to the law of God. Remember, the law is intended to drive us to Christ. That's the first and main function of the law. But there is what theologians refer to a threefold use of the law of God. Let me give you all three of them. The first is the law is intended to point out my sin and my desperate need of the Savior. The second use of the law is it restrains socially from sin. That's why there are laws in our land like don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't bear false testimony. And the third use of the law is that it continues to reveal God's will for our lives as Christians as members of his kingdom. So, for example, when we come to faith in Christ, the seventh commandment is still intact. In fact, Jesus is going to use it with the Pharisees. You shall not commit adultery. God is very much interested in not just the outward, but the holiness of our hearts, the sexual purity of our hearts and and of our minds. That law is still intact. When we come to faith in Christ, Jesus says, don't steal. You should rather Uphold your neighbor's right to property. In fact, Paul takes it a step further. He's been stealing, must steal no longer, but instead work hard so that what? We'll have resources to share with others who are in need. And so the law continues to reveal God's will for our lives. You still are not to have any other gods beside the true and living God. The commands aren't just tossed aside, but remember John Sanderson's words. Let me read them again. Throughout the entirety of your Christian life, that is on this side of the cross, on this side of trusting Jesus, throughout the entirety of your Christian life, Satan is going to attempt to confuse you over the relationship between law and grace. He's going to try to veer your life either towards legalism or towards license. And Scripture seeks to protect us from both of those dangerous ditches. First, with license. Living as though there is no law and as though God is not concerned with your living. Here's one of the ways we may seek, or Satan may seek, to try to confuse us and lead us towards license. Take, for example, the reading of Romans chapter 6, verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you. Why? You're not under law, but you're under grace. And we read that passage out of context and we think, great, there it is. I can have Jesus and I can continue on in this lifestyle. I can have the gospel and I can continue to live for myself in in debauchery and sin. Because why? I'm no longer under law, but I am under grace. We're no longer under law. What does he mean by that? In what sense, when Paul writes this, are we no longer under law? 
we are no longer under law as a means of justification. We are no longer under law as a way of salvation. Why? Perfect obedience to the law is required, and perfect obedience to the law is impossible for us to obtain salvation. So it must be obtained by grace. It must be obtained by faith in Jesus who perfectly obeyed the law and who died the law's penalty in my place. That's the only way that I can ever be made right with God. And so we are no longer under law as a means of justification. We are under grace in Christ through faith in Christ. Furthermore, Paul's language here indicates he's not thinking about continuing on living a life of sin. He says, sin shall no longer have dominion over you, sin that is lawlessness in John's eyes. And so never in a thousand years does Paul have this in mind. Never in a thousand years does Paul think the believer can toss aside the law of God and live as if it no longer mattered and God no longer cared. Far from that. Grace is intended to enable us to overcome the dominion of sin in our lives. That's Paul's point. Grace enables us to pursue Christ now through faith in loving obedience. Paul goes on in the very next verse and says, What then are we to sin because we're no longer under grace? And then he employs the strongest negative in the Greek language. It's translated, by no means. No way, unthinkable, unimaginable. If you think that grace leads now to license and gives us a license to sin, Paul says you do not understand the gospel of grace. The very point of grace that enables us to overcome this dominion of sin Mike McKinley put it this way, the good news of the kingdom does not mean that God no longer cares about the holiness of his people. In fact, just the opposite. Grace establishes the holiness of God's people. And so the renewed heart of the believer in Christ continues to cry out with the psalmist, Oh, how I love your law. Why? Because the gospel's done a heart work. We're actually saying, Oh, how I love you. That's the renewed heart of members of the kingdom of God. And so that's the way grace enables us to overcome Satan's deception of license. But what about legalism? Grace also overcomes the deception of legalism, of seeking to earn God's acceptance through the works of the law. And here's how he does it again. What's the demand of the law? Absolute, utter, perfection. Go back to the Sermon on the Mount again. Matthew chapter 5 verse 48. Jesus said be perfect as a heavenly Father is perfect. So what does a legalist have to do knowing this in order to fool themselves into thinking I've done enough for God to accept me according to his law? What does the legalist have to do? They have to lower the standard of the law. Years ago, decades ago, I had a decent vertical jump. I enjoyed shooting hoop, playing basketball. And uh, today, I just want you to know that even though I'm 62 and stand at 5'8", I can dunk a basketball. 
you lower that goal to six feet, and I am Shaquille O'Neal in his prime. I guarantee you. Give me a five-year-old to back into the goal as well. What do I have to do to dunk? I have to lower the standard. I have to way lower the goal. And such it is with legalism and the Pharisees of Jesus' day. They, they had to lower the standard of God's law in order to make it look like they could still jump through the hoop. One of the ways they did that was people are saying, now why does Jesus tack on the, the seventh commandment and this language about divorce in verse 18? It's because he's using it as an example of how the Pharisees had to lower the goal. Based on Deuteronomy 24, it says that a man could divorce his wife if he found no favor in her and if there was something not just displeasurable but indecent about her. The word indecent is probably leading to adultery. Now, the way the rabbis read this is that men had the right to divorce their wives, not the wives. They had no right to do this. And they so lowered the sta standard that basically they said, for any reason, for anything, you could divorce your wife, from growing old to burning the bagels. I mean, that was it. And as a result, this sliding scale of permissiveness led to countless divorces in Palestine. What did they do to say, we fulfill the law? They lowered the standard, and Jesus said, no, bring it back up to 10 feet. Bring it back up to where it belongs. Don't you understand, Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, the very purpose of that seventh commandment. Now, Jesus did later give reasons for divorce, biblical grounds for divorce. He's not dealing with that here. For adultery, Matthew 5 and 19. For abandonment in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. For physical abuse. That's not his point here. Jesus is saying the goal's still at 10 feet. Jesus is saying you, you, you've lowered the goal and permitted adultery for, uh, divorce for any and every reason. But what you should have seen in this command is that God still has given us the grounds for the permanency of marriage, the protection of wives from abuse, and for purity of heart. For the Pharisees lowered the goal exposing their futility and their hypocrisy. Jesus, no wonder Jesus said, for I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees or teachers of the law, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So again, what's our hope? What is our hope from the deception of either license or legalism? It is this, the gospel road. Run to Jesus Press into Christ for his righteousness alone as your acceptance before the living God and ask that his gospel and his grace would set our transformed hearts free to run out of a sense of God's glory and out of his grace. I love the way John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, explained this relationship between law and grace. Run, John, run, the law demands but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and grants us wings. The psalmist said the same thing about the, the law and grace. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. 
And that's what the gospel does. It enlarges our hearts with a greater capacity to love Christ. It enlarges our hearts for his will and way to be worked out in our lives. The NIV translates it, I will run in the way of your commands for you have set my heart free. That's what the gospel does. That's what grace does. There's an off-quoted scene in the old 1981 movie, Chariots of Fire, in which Eric Little's sister is trying to talk him out of the 1924 Olympics. She's afraid that all of his success will detour him from his earlier commitment to foreign missions with the gospel of Christ. And as she's trying to talk him out of the 1924 Olympics, which, by the way, he went on to win a gold, he turned to his sister in the movie and said, But Jenny... God has made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. My friends, the message of the kingdom of God says this. God has made you for his glory. God has strengthened you by his grace. And now he calls us to turn and run in the ways of his law, not as a means of salvation, but an expression to know his pleasure. Mike McKinley summarized well Jesus' teaching in this passage with these words. The arrival of the kingdom of God does not nullify the law, but transforms the hearts of its citizens so they will long to obey God's will. I trust that that's where you are this morning, that this describes you. For the child of God has discovered Christ's commands are not burdensome. They're not a sheer duty. They are an increased delight. And so my prayer is that Satan will not deceive us with regards to legalism or license. He will not confuse the relation between law and grace, but that the gospel of grace would set our transformed hearts free to run by His grace and for His glory, for His pleasure, and for His praise. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that once again the gospel of Jesus would captivate our hearts such that Satan would have no sway in our lives with regards to the confusion of law and grace in the kingdom of God so that he would not enable us to forget the gospel and to live as though you no longer care about our lives. I pray that Satan would not be able to deceive us and confuse us with regards to legalism and that license, but that you would set our transformed hearts free, that we might run out of a sense of not earning your favor, but having already received it in Christ, would run for your glory, by your grace, for your pleasure, and to your praise. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.